Well, welcome to the Motors and Martinis podcast. I'm Brian Rab Davis, and my co-host, as per usual, is Carrie Hubbard. And Carrie, how are things out in lovely Albuquerque, New Mexico, this fine day? Well, they're going pretty good. Just a little on the cooler side, but I've still been able to mess around with some projects. I got the smart car running and driving, actually driven it the past couple of days and it seems to be behaving nicely which is wonderful and i dropped the fuel tank out of the mercury grand marquee because the fuel pump is locked up it's been sitting for a long time and it uh doesn't like that so now i gotta put a new fuel pump in it and surprisingly very easy to pull the fuel tank on that thing you know there's a lot to be said for conventional engineering we've got a body on frame situation like that now i should know because my town car is the exact same setup um, is it bolted or is it strapped in? It's got the two straps, pull the straps and yeah. then slid it down at an angle. And then the fuel pump was just kind of right there. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. So I'm going to have to, unfortunately, pull the tank out completely and clean it up. It's got a little bit of schmuck in it, you know, and the wonderful gas of ye today, you know, it turns into corn molasses, essentially. You know, because everything out here has, you know, a certain percentage of ethanol, so it sits for a while and it just becomes disgusting. So I clean out the tank, put a new fuel pump in it, and hopefully get it to start. Well, you know, I actually have a certain percentage of ethanol in my system, and I tend to thrive on it. But, you know, that's, <laughs> that's another story we, for another day. I think we tend to thrive on ethanol a little bit differently than petrol, but, you know... <laughs> Now, when uh, Chuck and I were driving my town car from California to Wisconsin and back, whenever the opportunity presented itself, I did fill it with straight gasoline because, you know, you get into areas in the Midwest and you can still find pure, sweet, unadulterated gasoline. The kind that makes Greta Thunberg form a single perfect biodegradable tear on her cheek every time you burn it. Um, and the townie did get slightly better fuel economy on the, the pure gas. Oh, yeah, it's it's actually pretty impressive. There's one place locally that sells non-ethanol fuel. Um, and fortunately, it's only premium. I think it's 91 octane, but that's the highest spiciness we can get for petrol out here. And it's uh, quite expensive. I Let's see. The only car I religiously put non-ethanol in is the Bentley. Because, um, you know, that's got that SU multi-point crazy electric fuel pump that's like 600 bucks to replace. Only 600 bucks? That seems like, uh, that seems kind of cheap as Bentley parts go. Oh, it's quite a bargain when it comes to that. But, and you know, I really don't drive the Bentley as much as I really should, honestly. But, you know, it will sit for periods of time. So I, I try and like to keep some of the non-ethanol fuel in it. But everything else... You know, unfortunately, that's how it is. And, of course, when you buy cars from people, you know, that are fix it or I don't know, well, whatever they plan. And, they, you know, they put fuel in it to start it, move it, and then kind of forget about it. And it just sits there and turns to that good old varnishy schmuck. And, ooh, I tell you what, when I pulled that tank and got that fuel pump out, that was, um, I'd say, a nice vintage of about 2017. You know, I can smell it. It's it's where it gets that aroma that's almost like a liquid rubber cement kind of smell rather than gasoline. I, you know, I there's a part of me that that kind of wants to, you know, soak a little bit of cotton wool and 
And it's it's terrible. It means it's the death of your fuel system. But there's something about that. I, I think it's because I associate the rotten gas smell with unearthing <clears throat> unearthing a long dormant car. Like you've pulled, you know, you're in this barn and you pull the sheet back and you can see the, the, the body for the first time and you open the hood and you're you're looking all around. You're like, can it go? Can I save this? Can I bring it back? I associate the rotten gas smell with the, the frisson of excitement that comes with discovering a car that makes total sense i can absolutely see that for me i associate it with god this is going to be a bunch of money and a bunch of my time because oh well so so many times well yes because as soon as the frisson of excitement has evaporated along with the rotten gas fumes you start looking around and say sweet mary mother of god this is going to cost a bleeding fortune yeah and um i have Oh, geez. I'm trying to think. I've resurrected so many cars over the past 20 years. I think I've probably brought maybe 40 cars back to life from sitting out in a field, garages, you know, just derelict old finds that I've, you know, resurrected back to a driving state. And that smell of the rotten fuel has, um, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> so, so speaking of expensive parts and resurrections, you were telling me about the price you had to pay for head studs for the diesel celebrity. Oh, God, the diesel celebrity. Yeah, let's touch on that one for a second. I got the head gaskets in, bless. That was quite an amazing adventure to find those. Those got in. Now I'm trying to locate gaskets for the intake and exhaust manifold, which don't exist. And then uh, discovering that, you know, you can't just go buy bolts for the head because yeah, that's what it uses. Um, I think there's – I found one online source that had one bolt, but in GM's wonderful wisdom – I have notes somewhere. I think it uses three or four different length bolts in various different places. So I ended up calling ARP and uh, talking to somebody in their custom order department. And thankfully, I located an old GM parts manual. It's uh, like gmpartswiki.com or something. It's got a bunch of scans of old parts manuals. And I found, I referenced the part numbers off of a picture I found, and they list the measurements. So, like, one of them is N14 by 2 by 117 millimeter. And I think that takes 11 of those. I don't know. I've got it written down. And uh, ARP, I went through all the measurements, and he's like, well, we're not going to have to custom make those. We have those sizes in stock. You might have to shorten it a little bit, but that won't be a problem. And the bolts are about $32 to $38 a piece. If I wanted to do the stud conversion, which... I don't think it's quite necessary on this engine because it does have a significant amount of uh, holding power from the the head to the block, unlike the 570 diesels. Um, that's a little bit more expensive, but I mean, I think I need 28 of those bolts. So just for grins, I fired up Rock Auto this morning, and for, if you have a 2022 Corvette, uh, the head studs, there's a couple of different styles. They run between $2.15 and $2.20 a piece. Likewise, I dug a little deeper, and if you want a set of head studs for uh, your Rolls-Royce Silver Dawn or Silver Wraith or the equivalent Bentley model, uh, there's a vendor on eBay with an entire set for $250. Yeah, and I'm going to have to spend, I don't know, let's see. I did the math the other day, but I don't can't remember anything. So if I need 28 times an average is, say, $34. Oh, good Lord. Yeah, you should have like got the Rolls-Royce. Rolls yeah, you should have got a Rolls-Royce. Ironically, the funniest thing I've discovered is the Celebrity is probably the rarest car I own and the most complicated and difficult to get any parts for. 
and it's and a I Chevrolet. Own French stuff. And it's a Chevy. And yet I own French cars and obscure odd things. And I mean, there's, oh, geez. Yeah. So I'm slowly acquiring stuff. And when I do eventually have my hand on enough things, because I don't want to be one of those people that, you know, tears it apart. Because it start like I can start it and move it under its own power, which I quite enjoy. I don't like pushing cars. Um, I don't want to, you know, take it apart and tear it down and then discover that I can't find parts and I don't want to let it sit dormant apart for long periods of time. So I want to be more prepared to be able to do the repairs. That, that's smart. You, you want in, in the culinary world, they call it your mise en place, everything in its place. So when you're ready to perform surgery, you've got your bits and bobs all laid out, your tools all laid out, plenty of lighting, and then you methodically disassemble and reassemble the components. At least that's the idea. I don't necessarily do that, but <laughs> that is the idea. Oh, I preach that that's what I should do, and 90% of the times I don't do it. But there's just something with the celebrity that's a little bit more on the special side and really the historical resurrection of being able to properly fix the engine to make it run again and be a good driving vehicle. And, uh, you know, the preservation of it's kind of important. You know, like I've got my, my old Volkswagen, you know, how many Beatles are out there? Whatever, it's just a Beetle. And now I can get stuff for it and my other stuff. But with a celebrity specifically, it's a little on the different side. So uh, I was thinking about the, the diesel and what the advantages might be and disadvantages. I was, so, so, so I ran the specs between uh, an Iron Duke-powered celebrity, which you, that, that was the two-and-a-half-liter Pontiac uh, base four-cylinder for the celebrity and, the other, and many of the other A-bodies. And that engine um, was 92 horse, uh, contemporary to your, your 4.3 diesel, which that was rated at 85 horsepower. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the Duke had 134 pound-feet of torque. I think the diesel V6 was like 165 pound-feet yeah, of torque. Yeah, 165. Yeah, and okay, so the Duke... Uh, would run the Duke powered celebrity would go zero to sixty in fifteen point six seconds. The four three diesel would do it in fifteen point nine seconds. So there's only three tenths of a second difference in zero to sixty acceleration between the two. But here's where it gets interesting. The Duke has a combined fuel economy of twenty two and a bit miles per gallon. Whereas the 4.3 diesel, uh, 27.3 combined miles per gallon. And I got all this from, from um, Automobile Catalog, so that, that's, that's my source for the, for the information there. Uh, but but uh, you know, a 5 mile per gallon advantage um, overall, that would, that would actually probably pencil out in the long run. <clears throat> and from what I've understood from talking with people now that I have this car, you know, that have had experience, or there's a few people out there with the four threes, and they say it's not uncommon to get high 30s on a 4.3 diesel, and they say it's actually fairly impressive. I would believe that. It probably does its best at steady cruising speeds, you know, in the 60 mile an hour range. Yeah, which is like any diesel, you know, you just kind of, you just get up to it, and you hold steady speed. speed, and... Yeah, and it just sips and does this little merry thing. Yeah, so it would be a superb car for someone who regularly covered long distances because it's big enough to be comfortable, but it's not so big as to be unwieldy. And if you're going to be pushing <laughs> mid to high 30s on a freeway trip for your for, for your mile per gallon, that's that's going to be very impressive economy indeed. Oh, oh, oh yeah, that's it's exactly. Oh, and the other thing too that is nothing performance-wise, it's more of a... 
a personal thing for some people, but the diesel celebrity, the, any of the diesel GM cars, even my 91 Suburban with the 6.2 liter diesel, they always had additional sound insulation within the firewall, you know, other places to try and deaden the sound of the diesel because you know, people, oh my God, it's so loud. So you go from like a 350 powered Suburban or, you know, an Iron Duke celebrity compared to the diesel, they are actually quieter. So on the highway, there's less road noise and less general noise because they're over insulated to try and muffle that diesel sound. So for a comfortable ride, it's actually better. Yeah, so you're going to hear more engine noise on the outside of the car. But once you're inside, the difference will be negligible. Yeah, exactly. It's in my 6.2 liter V8 uh, non-turbo Suburban. You sit inside of it, it's really not that noticeable. I mean, you know it's there, but it's not that, it's not really that bad. Yeah, Motor Week ran one of those, and it was really interesting to watch. And I think they uh, took, if I remember correctly, they took it to a tuner and, and had some work done it. I'll have to look into that. That'd be something interesting to talk about. And really, we ought to do an episode on your experiences with the 6.2 Suburban Diesel, because that's quite a, uh, a formidable tow rig. Oh, oh yeah, it's it's been my my toe beast and my baby for a long time, and I have quite a bit of experience between several different six twos and six five turbo diesels in the general range of that engine. And uh, yeah, I won't get into details, but we should definitely do you know that generation since you know we covered some of the four three five seven stuff, then go into the actual you know truck diesels that they used because I actually am quite a fan. I love them to death. And, uh, you know, another another episode we might do, uh, if we're going to get really deep in GM diesels, we could get into the uh, electromotive division units that were used in locomotives. My, my husband knows quite a bit about them, so we could have him on as a guest. Ooh, yes. And anyways, that brings me to the point of today's episode, besides us, you know, chatting about wonderful things, is um, this is our end of year episode for the podcast. You know, it's getting towards the middle of December when we're uh, recording this, and it'll come out towards the end. So happy holidays to everyone out there. And we're going to kind of just go over the year in a recap, kind of future direction, some stuff of the the podcast and whatever else uh, comes upon our mind. Uh, you know, I just can't believe we're now eight episodes in, and I feel like we have made a quantum leap from episode one to the present, and it really hasn't been that long. I mean, it feels like we're kind of old hat at this now, and, and we've got a voice and a direction. I, I'm really happy with, with, with what we've done with, with the podcast. So, so, Carrie, what are some of your thoughts for, for going forward into 2023? Well, some stuff that I was thinking about uh, within the past week or so with coming up with this episode was, you know, I want a lot of uh, viewer input. So, you know, down in the description, I'll give it to you now. We do have an email. It's motorsandmartinispodcast at gmail.com. So if anyone has any ideas, directions, questions, I mean, we're both fine. You know, me with doing, you know, some Q&A stuff on tech, whatever anyone is interested in that we could, you know, put in the podcast, send us an email. Um, I definitely, because we've talked about it before, I want to, you know, get some extra people on, have some guests on the the podcast, you know, your husband, you know, some other people, I'm sure, you know, a lot more people in the automotive side of stuff out in the world that we can have on a Zoom call and has has as a guest. Well, and, and likewise, if anyone is listening and they think to themselves, gosh, I have a particular area of expertise I'd love to talk to Brian and Carrie about, we'd love to hear from you. Or if you have any suggestions of someone you would like for us to talk to, by all means, uh, reach out at the email or, hell, if you Google search 
Brian Rab Davis, all my contact information comes up. So so ping us and and definitely uh, let us know your thoughts because because uh, we're we're all about tailoring things to to sort of meet our audience's wants and desires. So let let's uh, let's by all means reach out to us. And, you know, as you said, I am really amazed at how well we've grown so far, you know, within the past eight episodes. I mean, you've got this really fancy mic I can see compared to, you know, the first couple episodes, you know, you just had your little headset and, you know, I've, um, cause I do all the, the editing and kind of the back behind scenes stuff on the podcast because I enjoy doing it. And I've learned the software, the editing a lot better. And I really think our volumes and our settings have gotten better and are just natural, speaking on the podcast has gotten a bit better and also thank you everyone out there for any of the kind words the support and you know people that are going to be listening to this on the malaise motors group who've uh, posted comments it's it's all greatly appreciated and you know that's why we do it because we can just talk on the phone whenever we want but um see people seem to really enjoy our conversations and our kind of bantering uh, and having said that, Carrie, I'm going to raise my, my glass and toast to you for handling the technical side of mixing and balancing the, the show because I did not have any experience along those lines at all. So without, without your technical expertise, motors and martinis would not happen. So, so cheers to you. Thank you so much for doing that. Oh, my pleasure. And thank you for even bringing up this idea, you know, the beginning of this year when you kind of threw it out at me. And the kind of funny thing was, you know, I don't know if we've talked about this in the past, but um, you had sent me that uh, message about doing a podcast and I'd already done a couple of podcasts with other people as a guest. And I thought that's what you're talking about. And I was like, oh, yeah, definitely. I'll I'll, I'll talk on a podcast. You're like, no, let's start a podcast. I was like, oh, okay. And Sure enough, here we are, and it's. Uh, I'm really enjoying it. It's an absolutely wonderful thing, and I'm glad we decided to start it. No, I agree. Our our recording sessions are something I look forward to. Um, it, it is it is a genuine pleasure for me, and I hope it is for those listening as well. And I'll tell you, Carrie, from that first time we sat down together in person at that brewery in Albuquerque, you, I, and my friend Larry, I knew the connection was more than just you know a one and a you know. It was that there was more to just to, to chatting with you than just sitting down and having a beer. We can play verbal badminton, and our our interests are so very similar. I wanted to to carry on that good vibe and and you know share it with other people. And so that that's why I was inspired to reach out to you for the podcast because it just seemed like a completely natural thing to do. It's it's greatly appreciated, and I I felt the same way with you. You're I think the only person I've ever had a conversation in an automotive setting where we both at the same time mentioned an Owen magnetic, and then we looked at each other and giggled, and it was kind of entertaining. There's just some stuff behind that, but that was uh, that was great. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, likewise. So th- this this is very good. So I'm very much so we're gonna get some feedback from the audience, and we're gonna definitely incorporate that. So besides that, do you have any any thoughts, Carrie, uh, about moving forward? I just really think we should stay in the direction we're doing. Um, I know at the very beginning we tried to be really, really structured, have all this research, you know, kind of, I don't know, that's what we thought we would do. And we did it a couple of times. And then we had a couple of just, I don't know, banter about back and forth and chatting episodes and kind of just morphed into this hybrid version of, yes, there's some stuff we do technical and educational, other stuff we do just talking and, you know, going on about stuff, which uh, I think is a great direction. We can continue to refine it and, uh, yeah, and hopefully get some really good uh, viewer intake and go from there. In- input, not intake. Well, and see, I'm very much of the same mind. I agree with you because I think we've developed a really good 
chat show that we can inform with technical information. That way it's not so technical as to be difficult to digest for anyone who's listening casually, but if we get some input where you know from a listener where they you know maybe want to go down a tangent and get in detail, we can do that if we so desire. That that's the beautiful thing here is we can steer this ship any direction we choose. Oh. Oh yeah. I'm gonna go ahead and grab that big old wheel and see how big should it be. If I yay big and we just flick it one direction or the other. It's great. And give the helm down to the engine men and tell them to go. <laughs> so Speaking of, there's not a whole lot of YouTube automotive content I enjoy. Of course, Carrie's Garage is fantastic, and anyone listening should by all means watch Carrie's Garage. Uh, but uh, another presenter on YouTube that I greatly enjoy is Ian Tyrrell, Tyrrell's classic workshop. He's an Englishman, uh, and he's always working on uh, Lamborghinis or Ferraris or occasionally a Rover or a Saab or something, and he's just this very urbane gentleman but he did an episode fairly recently about one of my deepest mechanical loves, and that is the last remaining ocean-going, steam-powered paddle-wheel vessel in the world, the paddle steamer Waverly, based out of, uh, I want to say she's birthed in Glasgow, Scotland. I know she's in Scotland, but I, I can't remember if it's Glasgow or, or Edinburgh. No, it's Glasgow. Regardless, it's probably the most elegant thing afloat, and Ian went on board the ship and did this in-depth tour of the whole thing. Spent time in the engine rooms, um, you know, went on the helm, steered it, and I, I mean, I was just in heaven watching him connect with this exquisite machine. That sounds really awesome. I'll have to check out his channel. Is he the one that uh, built the Silver Shadow to drive up to the Arctic Circle and back? You know, he might have been. I remember reading that, uh, an article about that car. Uh, I don't know if it was him. It certainly, it would certainly fit his M.O. if it wasn't. Because I I seem to remember I was looking up a video on a, uh, I think it was a Series 2 Jag XJ12C, which I'm not a two-door coupe kind of a person. I'm usually a four-door wagon, you know, bigger car person. But certain cars carry two-door lines so nice and an xj12c is oh it's supreme sex just oh it's gorgeous well, and he did a review on one well i was just gonna say that was the last production jaguar uh with which sir william lyons had a direct hand and sir william lyons was a master stylist so it's no surprise that that car is as beautiful as it is okay that makes sense but yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I think I've seen his videos. So I'll have to check out that one because, you know, I do enjoy more than just cars and motorcycles. You know, I love planes. Big rotary engines are amazing. Steam, you know, all, all kinds of any propulsion system to move a person or something I quite enjoy. And technical and historical side of it. I really like knowing the history and the design stuff behind it really is always interesting to me. You know, and to that end, I'm planning a little Malaise Motors show. Um, actually, it's in conjunction with the Brougham Society, and it's going to be this summer in uh, Detroit and environs. And I'm really hoping while we're out there, we can do the Henry Ford Museum. Last time I was in Detroit, I went to Greenfield Village, which if you have not visited, I highly suggest you take a trip because uh, they have Thomas Edison's laboratories reconstructed there, along with some of his early uh, electricity-generating equipment. So... Uh, you know, we're talking 1880s here, so there are big, high-pressure boilers and massive reciprocating steam engines, and that's how he turned his dynamos. And the the equipment's all there, and I guess they used to run it up until you know maybe the 80s. So it's just it's just really a sight to behold. 
That is that's so cool. I have always wanted to go up there, and I was actually just north of Detroit in 2015, I believe. I was I had a contract job to go pick up a 1957 Citroen DS19 from a guy for another guy in California, and um, this is the point that I wasn't really working, and I just can kind of do whatever I want. So I had my friends. Uh, Cummins and I had my trailer and um, certain vehicles like a Citroen that doesn't run is very difficult to move because the hydrodynamic suspension system mm-hmm. will settle and you've only got a couple of inches of ground clearance if that mm-hmm. so there's a certain way to be able to load it without doing damage to the chassis or anything and um, people got the word about that so I got a few jobs doing that but it was in Lake Orion Michigan which is north of Detroit but while I was driving there, besides the fact that transmission of the truck I was driving exploded outside of St. Louis, but that's a story for a different day, I got to drive through Kalamazoo and see the last remaining building of Checker Motor Company before it had been demolished. And that was a very, very emotional thing for me because the Checker is the first car I ever fell in love with as a six or seven year old kid. And I owned one and I stupidly sold it. So Checker's always been a very special place in my heart and seeing it was. The last, the last of it there. It was that was pretty intense. But I would like to go to Detroit at some point. No, D- Detroit is wonderful. I- is it a city that has a lot of challenges? Oh yes, oh yes. It, any city that is post-industrial has has a has a steep hill to climb. Baltimore is much the same way. But they have uh, Baltimore and Detroit both are still cities that have an amazing personality all their own. Um, very very rich history and so much to see and so much to do. Uh, by all means, visit Detroit, visit Motor City. I, I can't emphasize that enough. Yeah, I I think that is a goal of mine. Hell, maybe I'll drive a diesel celebrity up to Detroit <laughs> as well. You oh, which speaking of, uh, what what plant was that celebrity built at, or do you know? Uh, I mean, it'll be on question. I was gonna say if you you can work the VIN out and figure it out. I just thought you might have might have done so. Well, the thing is. I do that frequently with all of my vehicles, and then I forget because I have so much information always swirling around in my head. So um, I have it written down somewhere. I'll, I'll have to look. That's a totally like that's a that's a totally normal thing to do when you have a lot on your plate and a lot of different information. The stuff where you know how to get the info, like. I won't remember it because it's like, I know that if I want to know where the car was built, the VIN is plastered on the door jam. I can go look at it any time. So I won't necessarily retain that because I know how to get the information. It sounds like you do the same thing. Yeah, it's, um, there was a point, you know, when I had less of a diversity of an automotive collection hoard or whatnot, when, you know, I could be like, that car was made at Willow Run. That car, you know, was made in Ding- Dingelfing, Germany. And I would knew exactly which vehicle was made where you know i had certain part numbers memorized but you know now i've got i don't know 12 or 13 different makes on my property and several of the and it's just and it gets to the point where i don't know if i even had the mental space to memorize all that stuff there's certain little minute stuff yes but you know it's just it gets to the point so i always i have notes everywhere so i can at least try and remember half the time but um yeah well, I do know my town car was built at Wixom, Michigan, as all Lincolns were up until I, I don't know when Ford decommissioned that plant. And if my understanding is it has since been demolished and turned into a parking lot, which was then turned into a shopping mall. And now the shopping mall itself is going the way of shopping malls. That, that's, uh, yeah, so very sad indeed. The Wixom, with the Wixom plant was, a, was, a, was quite a place. It's where they built all the Suicide Door Continentals and Thunderbirds. Oh, really? And, yeah, so many other cars. 
So I am looking right now at the oh plant code. Oh, they don't have a decode for the plant code. What's well, oh annoying. bother? R. Where's our? I don't know. It says it's made by Chevrolet division. <laughs> well, that that we know. I'm. I wonder where R is. Oh, let's see. Yeah, I say that, that we. Yeah, this we got to find this out. There's a lot of stuff on how to decode Chevy trucks. <laughs> Well, I mean, they are one of the best-selling vehicles in in the oh. world, or certainly in the country. Which, you know, people like to tout that uh, the Ford F Series is the, the or the F one fifty is the biggest-selling truck. But GM actually sells more trucks if you combine uh, GMC branded trucks and Chevy branded trucks. But they count as different uh, production numbers, I guess. So, yeah. Well, let's see. Um, my car. What's at the eleventh position? One, two. So actually, my car, the 11th position, which according to this decode is the plant, and mine says six. So whatever GM plant is code six, that's where the celebrity was built. Which I'm now Googling GM plant code six. Fort Wayne, Indiana. Oh, well, there you go. Now you know. She's, She's an Indiana girl. She's a Hoosier. I think... Uh, unless I'm reading it wrong, um, pre, oh no, that's pre-81 plant codes. This one's 83. Uh, I could do some more research. We'll talk about it later. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say, we, because I'll, I'll get obsessive about this and try and figure it out exactly. But anyways, um, what else? Where did they make them? Like my Mercury, where was that built? Uh, that's you know? a very good question. I, I I do not know. I only know my Lincoln because I know all the Lincolns are built at Wixom. Okay. Ooh, actually, I think. See, I'm obsessing now. I did find a 1983. It's okay. This is from 1983. Oh, it's Oklahoma City. So my car was built in oh. okay. Is it great? No. It's just okay. All right, I'll, I'll show it, myself out. And it's one of those things, like, it doesn't really matter. It's not that big of a thing, but I love minute details like this, and I obsess about stuff like this. So now I know the car was built in Oklahoma. <laughs> Jeez. But I do know it was bought brand new in Albuquerque, which is cool. I found a little sticker of, uh, from it being serviced in 85. Well, it's like uh, Chris's Pontiac Sunbird, the 15,000-mile car. It's got a, you know, there's the, the, the sticker on the, well, it's not really a sticker. It's a plaque on the deck lid that, you know, gives the, the, sell, the sales dealership. And it's in the same town he bought it. And the car hasn't been within 30 miles of, of, uh, of that little town in upstate New York since it was new. And then we buy it and in the rain, in the dark, drive it all the way down to Maryland. And it, it acquitted itself quite well. Although I got to say the the shocks and struts are definitely past their sell-by date in spite of the low mileage. And would you believe that uh, J-body struts are kind of hard to come by now? Really? Well, yeah, at least the earlier know, J-body struts. Before, prior to my current experience, you know, thinking, oh, whatever, GM stuff, Ford stuff. But now, you know, with the celebrity, it's just like, I- I'm genuinely amazed. And I guess it makes sense because certain vehicles like the A-body or your guys' J-body, you know... They're not. Uh, they weren't a collectible car, you know. Now they are because they've gotten so bloody rare. So certain stuff has gotten incredibly difficult to find for these cars. 
Well, you know, the the A body has got to be one of the most diverse uh, platforms GM ran in the 80s. It was derived from the front-wheel drive X body, the much maligned, but I, I like X bodies. And, I mean, mm-hmm. consider consider all the variations of the A body. There were coupes, sedans, wagons, and then think of the powertrains. You had everything from uh, a four-cylinder uh, gas engine. You had a couple of V, several V6s, including a diesel and then um, you had three and uh, three and four speed automatics, but then you also had the Pontiac Six Thousand STE, which could be had all wheel drive. That is correct. So that is that, that's definitely interesting. To look at it that way, but I mean, any more? Uh, and I mean, the other thing too is you know think my celebrity turns forty next year. Like I remember when these cars were. 10 year old cars barely you know just cruising around you know i was a kid you know seeing them everywhere and now it's just like it it really it blows me away and to the fact that when i was a lot younger you know see a chrysler k car and be like whatever it's just a car and now i see a chrysler k car and i'm like ooh, i wouldn't mind having a k aries that's lovely (laughs) i mean well i mean who who wouldn't if you can find a better car buy it now that's an that's another program i'd like to do is just just advertising slogans from the day have you driven a ford lately i i I think one of our episodes should be uh, like commercial sound clips or, you know, we just talk about stuff and we'll throw in like really random. If you can use a light switch, you can drive an Edsel. Oh, God, that would be so much fun. So much better. (laughs) Although at last, you no longer have to imagine yourself in a Mercury because you own one. I do own one. And this is actually my, ooh, what's the number? This is my third Mercury. Granted, the Prior to were quite significantly different. I had two sixty seven Cougars, a standard Cougar, a base model with a two eighty nine and a sixty seven XR seven. So I you know, know in, I know Cougars quite well. In my opinion, Cougars are superior to Mustangs, but that's just just my opinion. Oh, I I completely agree, and I grew up with it. My mom had a sixty seven Cougar GT three ninety four speed with a Posse when she was in high school, so I grew up listening to that. And, you know, Mustangs are cool. I can appreciate Mustangs. But, you know, going from a Mustang, and I've, I've messed around with plenty, and Cougars, you know, they, they have more sound insulation, a little more comfortable, a little more refined. You always refer to, quote, quote unquote, as the rich man's Mustang. And it really is. They're they're quite lovely, and I adore Mustang uh, Cougars, and I will own another one. I really will. I, no, I, once I, find I agree. Right Especially, I, what I really like is the interior design of the, that first-generation Cougar. It's very much Dearborn does... Jaguar. They were clearly inspired by that, you know, genteel, refined, but still slightly sporting and raffish feel that Jags of the period had. Now, of course, Ford would go on to own Jaguar a few decades later, and I wouldn't call that a match made in heaven, but the Ford Jags definitely have their place in the world, and I'm, I'm glad they did. They probably kept Jaguar going to the present day, but now I think Jaguar has really lost their way, and that's that's um, sad in my eyes. I mean, they, they used to have such a distinctive design language, and it's just, they just don't anymore. Yeah, it definitely is unfortunate. The, the Ford era, I know there's mixed feelings about it. I know some people like, ooh, Ford reliability, but you know, you still have stuff mixed into it. And I've worked on them before in the past, and you know, still a Jag, but I know there's they did save them. My favorite one was of the era that they owned Jag and Aston Martin at the same time. And I worked on, it was like an 01, 02, and 03, or somewhere in the early 2000s. It was a V12 Vanquish at this shop I used to work at. And the the keyless fob 
was a four truck keyless fob with the little ridges on it, the, the three buttons, the little rectangular thing. You know, every Ford truck and car for a b- billion of them made, but you turn around and it had Aston Martin on the back. It was the funniest thing I've ever seen. Oh, so, well, and, and again, even before that, uh, Aston Martin bought in a Ford steering wheel with airbag steering wheel and and it was the it was you know the same square big square center airbag steering wheel that you would find in a Mustang or a Crown Vic of the day except it had the little Aston Martin you know wing logo stuck stuck in it but you know that's they did what they had to do Aston Martin was a boutique manufacturer they still are that's why they had the Sonier in order to meet fuel economy requirements they where they took the little that little Toyota thing the size of your smart car and Aston Martinized I, it I want one of those of course you can't you get and me, me I both. want one I, well, think, hey, I, I mean how great is that little little fabulous leather package Aston in the front end of it's just where it's at. You know, you got the Aston grill in a car the size of a, basically a smart car, the Toyota's version of the smart car. Well, you know, and while you're on that, uh, are you familiar with the like there was uh, there was a British firm called Radford and they did uh, you know custom interiors for Rolls Royces and Bentleys and so on, and they took the Mini, the 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 I'm going to use the word iconic. They took the Mini, the iconic Mini, and they gave it a Rolls Royce level interior. They took you could get uh, several celebrities had one. You had these thickly padded Connolly leather seats with the contrast piping and finest burl walnut veneers and heavily chromed switch gear and it was a mini they're glorious radford mini i adore stuff like that what was the um, wasn't it a riley that was built off of a mini but it had an actual a nose and kind of a humpback trunk and it was trying oh, to look like was... a more civilized passenger car but it was still a mini well, yeah, there was there were there were several mini derivations. There was a Riley version. There was which I think was called the Elf. Uh, there was a Woolsey yes, yes, version, the and the Woolsey version also had its own little grill. And Woolsey, for those of you who are not familiar, was a British mark uh, that was sort of very you know upper middle class conservative. A Jag would have been uh, just too raffish, and so but a, but a Woolsey was was a Woolsey was kind of a British Buick. And, and yeah, so they did a Woolsey-ized uh, Mini, and it, it had leather and a nice dashboard and everything. And it was not as posh as the, as the Radford Minis, but it was it was still an upmarket Mini, and it had this cute little Woolsey badge and the radiator grill that that was just cosmetic, but it would light up. And that was a Woolsey trademark going back to the 30s. Oh, that is that is brilliant. There you go. Here's another idea for an episode. We should do a discussion on badge engineering and, you know vehicles that wear other vehicles badges or whatnot because there is some there are some genuinely interesting ones out there oh most definitely most definitely and and some of some of my particular favorites are british like the vanden plaz uh, when they when they when they uh like they took austin allegros and and marketed them as vanden plaz and vanden plaz was actually a not were they belt swiss they, vanden plaz was a swiss coach builder uh but they eventually got or at least their British arm got folded up into the Camara of British Leyland, and that's and in fact that's why top level Jags were known in the states as as the Vanden Pla, because in Britain they were sold as Daimlers, but another company uh, owned the Daimler <clears throat> Daimler name here in the states, so that that's why a, a British Daimler was sold here as a Vanden Pla. Oh, I did not know that. That and is if, quite and if, interesting. And if you look, the the Vandenplot, like like if you go late '90s, early aughts, Van, Jaguar XJ8 Vandenplot, it's still got the fluted grill, and a fluted grill was one of Daimler's signature uh, styling touches going back 
uh, you know, into the, the tens and teens, whereas a regular Jaguar of that period doesn't have that. And if you, and, and if you look again, it's, it's, a, it's a Daimler in Britain and a Vanden Pla here. I have never thought about that, but yeah, you're right. That is really wild. I've always wanted to buy one and rebadge it as a Daimler. Just and and the the, the Daimler emblem is this a little you know sort of a cursive letter D with oh, a little curly Q. The D is fabulous. It's like, <laughs> um, what was that? Oh, I know what I was going to ask you. How did removing the hydraulic ram on the lift go? Oh, oh, the only people who got rammed were Christopher and I because it's still there. We got the hydraulic lines off, no problem. That was easy peasy. The problem is the ram itself probably weighs 200 pounds and we could not get a good enough grip on it to lift it out. So I've got to, I mean, there are some companies I could have come out to the house and remove it and I may have to do that. But before I spend that much money, a good friend of mine is a NASA engineer and I'm going to have him come over and see if we can't, uh, between the three of us, engineer a solution. I cannot wait to hear how that turns out. <laughs> Oh, that'll be a story for 2023s. I'm hoping I'm gonna, I'm gonna. I don't. You know, we're all dealing with with Christmas bullshit at the present moment, so it'll have to wait till after Christmas. Um, but in the meantime, the Lincoln is still 18 inches in the air on my lift, and uh, at least it's it's safe from the road salt and the ravages of the winter while it is. So, well, that's good at least. But I uh, I hope it works out for you. I just uh, I'm oh, I mean, better it, well, you than it, me. Yeah, it's it is a fixable problem. It's just, it's just an obnoxious it, problem. Correct. It is obnoxious. It is. I, I have a litany of irritating, drawn out problems in my life. It's you know. It's it has been very much a case of pulling the bandaid off slowly with so many of them, and it's deeply frustrating. I can totally understand and relate to that. <laughs> Anywho, I was actually just looking at the time, and uh, we're we're getting pretty darn close. I know this is the end of year kind of I don't know what to call it a special episode, but are talking about stuff. And uh, yeah, as as usual, it's been an absolute joy, and thank you again so much for this opportunity to be able to create this content and uh, co-podcast with you because it has been an absolute pleasure and I really look forward to the growth of 2023 and the wondrous adventures that we have on the podcast in that time. As do I, Carrie. Um, we're going to have a lot to talk about both historically, uh, technologically, uh, with our guests, and just with what's going on in our respective lives, both personal and automotive. And I can't wait to talk about it more in 2023. And in the meantime, I wish you and your family the, the happiest of holiday seasons and New Year's. You too. I hope you and Chris have a good holidays, whatever you guys have planned, and you know any family you see. And uh, yeah, we will uh, continue on in 2023. So everyone out there, thank you again for the support. It's been absolutely wonderful putting this out for you. And send us an email. Please communicate. Uh, we want ideas. You know, if you want to come on and talk to us, our email again is motorsandmartinispodcast at gmail.com. It'll also be down in the description. And have a happy holidays and a great new year.